0: You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. Ayn Rand on the Genealogy of Altruism by Ben Baer. Cold
1: open. Altruism is everywhere. I don't think I need to sell this audience on just how ubiquitous it is in our culture. We see it on the political and cultural left. We see it from the socialists who want to abolish billionaires and tax us all to death to redistribute wealth for the sake of the needy. We see it among the advocates of so-called effective altruism, who want us to make a lot of money just so that we can voluntarily give it away basically to the same kinds of causes. We see it from the environmentalists who want us to give up our cars and our fossil fuels in order to prevent harm to the environment. And we also see it, and the environmentalists even want some people to stop having the children that they want to have because those children will use too many resources and also hurt the environment. It's on the other side of the political and cultural spectrum as well. And from time to time time today, I'm going to make reference back to the abortion controversy. Because we definitely see altruism in the calls to ban and to oppose abortion uh, on the grounds that women should selflessly decide to have children that they don't want for the sake of the so-called rights of the fetus and for the sake of the god that demands it not be killed. So altruism is everywhere. Where does it come from? In her essay, and speech, Faith and Force, Destroyers of the Modern World, Ayn Rand comments on this question, and she says, there's no earthly reason for it. And ladies and gentlemen, in the whole history of philosophy, no earthly reason has ever been given. What she means, of course, is that altruism is accepted on faith. It's accepted out of a form of mysticism, the idea that there's a mysterious, non-rational form of knowledge. She says, you don't try to justify the unjustifiable, you just take it on faith. Okay. But then where does all the mysticism come from? What leads people to have this mystical approach that leads them to accept altruism? Well, part of the answer, but it's very important that it is not part, that is not the whole answer, is that, well, they they learn mystical ways of thinking from mystical philosophies, from religions. It's it's important for the objectivist view of history that philosophy is the mover of history, and that ideas are inherited from philosophers from the past. But that is not a sufficient explanation for where the mysticism comes from, because it just kicks the can down the road a bit. Where do the mystical philosophers get their mysticism and their altruism from? You can say, well, they got it from still other philosophers in the past. But at a certain point, you're going to need to stop and ask where the idea originates in someone's psychology. So one place to look for a clue is is Ayn Rand's essay, The Objectivist Ethics, where she characterizes in, in sweeping terms the nature of the dominant moral philosophies of our culture. She says that whether we're talking about a religious approach to morality or a secular approach to morality, all of these views are united in the idea that ultimately, moral claims can only be founded on faith, instinct, intuition, urge, wish, whim. Altruistic morality, she thinks, derives from whim worship. But what exactly is a whim? This is something we're going to come back to time and time again in the talk today. Here's the way she characterizes it in that essay. She says, a whim is a desire experienced by a person who does not know and does not care to discover its cause. So whim's not just any old emotion. It's an emotion that's treated in a certain way by a certain type of person. You know, of course, that in the objectivist theory of emotions, Emotions do have causes, that there are reactions to the world in light of our value judgments about the world. So they presuppose some thinking that we've done, or some lack of thinking that we've done that's led us to have certain value judgments about the world. There's something about the nature of the judgments a person has made that certain people don't want to discover. So what I'm going to do today in presenting Ayn Rand's genealogy of altruism, I'm going to try to trace back the origin of altruism, not just in the philosophers of the past, but in the basic psychological orientation that those philosophers must have adopted in order to get to the point of presenting a philosophy of morality based on whim. So there's a sociological component here. There's there's an inheriting it from previous philosophers, but there's also a psychological component. And that psychological component is going to be active both for people who accept altruism, there's reasons they find it appealing, but there's also reasons, psychological reasons, for which the philosophers propose and try to push altruism on the followers. I think that when we do this, when we look at the motives that are buried deep in the past of the history of altruism and that continue to be operative today, we're going to know something, we're going to learn something about not just a curiosity of history, but something about why altruism is so bad and why it's so destructive, that if it, if it came from motives like this, there's got to be something really bad about it and we should expect it to have destructive consequences in the world. So the plan for the day is to divide our genealogy into basically three stages, and you can think of this as, going back in time in a certain way, but also digging deeper into the psychology of the people who accept it on certain levels. We'll start with the, the category we'll say the least about the people who are, who are honestly mistaken in their acceptance of altruism. There's not so much to say about them. There's a lot more to say about the other two categories. The, the second category is going to be people who are the dishonest followers of altruism. And here the emphasis will be on the followers the third will be on the leaders and i should say that these two categories are not really mutually exclusive that there's a big overlap between the two of them because some people start out as followers and then they become leaders and i'll have a kind of middle category where the the two overlap that i spend some time talking about okay so let's talk first about that first category and i have the least to say about this Uh, i don't think a lot of explanations needed for why a lot of people are honestly mistaken in being tempted by altruism. It comes to the point, I think, that they're confused on a point of philosophy. They confuse altruism, with, which, is a, which is an evil and vicious doctrine, with something that actually is rational and virtuous, uh, benevolence, generosity. Uh, here's the way that Ayn Rand herself explained this point in her essay, Don't Let It Go. She said there, Americans accept altruism not for what it is, not as a vicious doctrine of self immolation, but in the spirit of a strong, confident man's over generous desire to relieve the suffering of others whose character he does not understand. So, there's a couple of things to say about this passage. Uh, one, is that, one is that it's got the point that I already mentioned about the, the confusion. They, they accept it out of their generosity, thinking that it is the same thing as generosity, not realizing what it is, a vicious doctrine of self-immolation. But then you'll notice the other part at the end here about how they don't understand the character of the people they're being asked to serve. That's going to be important as we move on, because, of course, they're the ones who are demanding very often that altruism be practiced. And so, if we want to understand where altruism comes from, we want to understand what it is about the character of these people that is so difficult to understand that motivates them to preach it and demand it in the first place. I always like to talk here about the character of Hank Reardon in Atlas Shrugged. I think he is an example of the kind of psychological orientation we're talking about here. Reardon is uh, I think at the beginning of the novel, honestly mistaken in accepting a number of different claims from conventional morality. This is why he defers to his family's demands and is willing to tolerate all of the insults and disrespect that he gets from them. He thinks that as a productive achiever, helping them out is easy. He doesn't, though, importantly, recognize the character of the people he's dealing with. And by the end of the novel, After A, Francisco has explained to him a more rational approach to morality and he sees the difference between altruism uh, or the morality of death and regular old generosity, he he then starts to see his family in a different light and he starts to realize that there is a very malicious motive that's driving them and that's of course when he finally breaks with them and splits and and goes on strike and, and becomes liberated from that Iras- that irrational grip on him. So this is, of course, the, the reason why a lot of people are honestly mistaken about altruism, and that's a lot of people. I think it's, it's hard to say exactly what percentage of Americans who are sympathetic to altruism are for this reason versus some of the more nefarious reasons we're going to be talking about, but it's a big chunk, and yet this is only digging down a little bit of the way into understanding where all the altruism comes from. Obviously, these people uh, are buying it because they're being sold it. They're being sold a package deal by professional intellectuals who are trying to sell altruism under the guise of benevolence. Most people aren't professional philosophers. They don't know an alternative, and so they buy this package. But what we need to explore now is, well, where is the package coming from? Where where are the intellectuals getting it from? What's motivating them to try to sell it? And that's going to take us now into the category of various dishonest reasons for following and, of course, for promoting altruism. So we'll go first to the dishonest followers of altruism. And the first thing to say about why they believe it is something I've already commented on a little bit, though there's important things to develop about it. And that's that they believe it because they have a kind of faith in authority. This is Ayn Rand's point that altruism originates in mysticism. But one important thing to say about faith is that the people who have faith don't have faith in what they often think they have it in. If you have faith in a god and there is no god to have the faith in, then the object of your faith must actually be something else. And the way that Ayn Rand understands this, at least very often, is the way she puts it in Galt's speech. Faith in the supernatural begins as faith in the superiority of others. So people meet with a challenge, they meet with disagreement from other important people in their lives. They don't want to rock the boat, and so because this parent or this preacher or this professor has told them altruism is good, you should sacrifice, you shouldn't be selfish, they believe it. And here I always like to give the story of Catherine Halsey from The Fountainhead. There's a, there's a scene, I think in the last third of the book, when she's being confronted by Ellsworth Tuey. And Toohey is trying to explain to her why, if she does what he tells her to do, and if he, if she, gives up all of her personal interests and ambitions and loves. Why is it that at that point there will still be a self left for her to enter the gates of spiritual grandeur, if you remember this scene? And he tells her, uh, you've just got to take it on faith. He actually starts it by saying, that was a smart crack, wasn't it, Katie? So that's to intimidate her. And then he says, you've just got to believe. You've just got to take it on faith. And what she says in response, I think, is revealing. She says... Yes, I will believe. I'll try to understand. No, not to understand, to feel, to believe, I mean. Only, I'm so weak. I've always, I always feel so small after talking to you. I suppose I was right in a way. I am worthless. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. So here we see Catherine giving in to the authority figure who's, who's worked to intimidate her. And she's, she's not able to resist or she chooses not to resist. And one thing that you should note about that is that you you also see there the connection between faith as such and self-sacrifice. If you accustom yourself to believing things on faith, if you surrender your mind and you say, it's worthless, I'm no good, I couldn't understand anyway, well, you're going to be a lot more amenable to the idea of self-sacrifice. You're not going to value yourself so much in the first place. Objectivism's view is that the self just is the mind, that self-sacrifice is mind sacrifice. So unfortunately, there are all too many examples of people like Catherine around us today. Uh, Think about how many people uh, on college campuses will adopt the latest woke slogans, not because they've uh, studied the philosophies behind them carefully, not because they've, uh, they have any deeper motives, just because they're afraid to rock the boat, because it's what their friends believe. Or, again, to go back to the abortion example, I mean, how many conservatives do you suppose are out there who uh, say that they oppo- oppose abortion rights and think that abo- abortion is wrong, not because they've thought a lot about the somewhat complex moral philosophical issues at stake in the debate, but because they look around them and they see all of their conservative friends saying that it's evil, they don't want to be called baby killers. And so they go along with that. They're afraid to challenge it. Well, I said that what we were going to be exploring was the, the variety of whims that inform and motivate the acceptance of altruism. And so if we've now, if we've now said that the, this first category of followers adopted simply out of faith and authority. What's the whim that's behind faith and authority? I think the story of Catherine and some of the other examples that I gave should illustrate that because it, it, it shows it's really a kind of fear. It's a kind of fear of defying authority. But of course, this is the kind of thing one can do. And that's why I want to emphasize this is still dishonest. You don't get to excuse them just because they're afraid of challenging the authority. Anybody who's given some doctrine that they can't understand, even if they don't really understand the alternative to it, even if they don't know objectivism as an alternative rational morality, that doesn't mean they have to accept what they've been told. They They can just say, well, I haven't been given a better alternative yet. I don't understand what you've told me. Uncle Ellsworth that I'm not going to believe something I don't understand. So sociologically, this takes us a little bit back of the way into the genealogy of morality because we now know that uh, there are people who accept it just because other people are preaching it to them and they've made the bad choice to accept uncritically what they've been preached. That doesn't take us back very far, of course, because we still want to know, okay, well, where do all the preachers come from and why do the preachers Uh, Why are they motivated to to preach it? Well, the next category I want to go into gets us a little closer to that, but it's still intermediate. There's another category of dishonest followers of altruism, who I think are tribalists, who seek protection of a tribe. Now, there's a lot of overlap between this category and the ones who accept it on faith. You might argue that uh, even Catherine becomes a kind of tribalist toward the end of her story. But this is a perspective on altruism that Ayn Rand develops in her essay, Selfishness Without a Self. There she talks about people who have what she calls the anti-conceptual mentality. They're people who uh, never, who refuse to accept the responsibility of, of being the drivers of their own mind. They, they, abdicate the responsibility of cognition. They they don't choose their own values. They don't choose to form their own self. And as a result, they have a kind of anxiety. They they need some kind of guidance, but they don't have any values to guide it for themselves, to make choices for themselves. So they, they need to get guidance from somewhere else, and they look to the group that will protect them. They look to the tribe. And so she writes, it's obvious why the morality of altruism is a tribal phenomenon. The men of self-arrested perceptual mentality are unable to survive without tribal leadership and protection against reality. The doctrine of self-sacrifice does not offend them. They have no sense of self or personal value. They can't be offended by sacrificing a self that they don't actually have. So here I think the the best example to think about is someone like Peter Keating, who, as you know, never bothers to develop any personal values of his own because he he is not in charge of his own cognition. And so, as a result, when he's presented with the option to make one sacrifice after another, he doesn't spend a lot of time deliberating about it. He's not conflicted about it. It, it, There's nothing offensive about it to him. he doesn't mind sacrificing his nascent interest in visual arts to, uh, to architecture, which his mother says will help him meet the best people. He doesn't mind sacrificing his love for Catherine to Dominique, just because marrying Dominique will help him advance socially. And then when End offers him the contract for Stone Ridge in exchange for Dominique, he doesn't mind sacrificing Dominique either. So it's no big surprise that by the end of the story, he, in effect becomes a pawn of Tui. Tui is able to manipulate him uh, because now Tui is, in effect, the leader of a tribe that Keating is getting ready to join out of hopelessness, anxiety, not being able to make his own decisions. And he becomes manipulated by Tui for the sake of putting one over on Rourke over the Cortland Holmes scandal. In the real world, People like Keating are all around us today. Think about the countless products of our modern education system, who never really bothered to learn to think for themselves, who then find themselves lost in a world they don't really understand, uh, and end up joining one tribe or another to seek that kind of protection. So think about the college activists who join a BLM protest in the streets or who. Uh, join a cancel mob on Twitter. Or think about on the other side of things, uh, the, the hopeless souls who get caught up in something like the QAnon conspiracy theory, and then go march on the Capitol just a few blocks away from here, out of some kind of fantasy about an election, which, uh, and what they're really trying to do is to add some meaning to their life by joining a cause that they see as uh, bigger than themselves. So where does a, where does this kind of tribalism come from? What's the whim here? Well, I, I hope you see that it's a deeper problem than simply being afraid of authority. Being afraid of authority is being afraid of another person. The tribalistic mentality that I'm describing here that I think Ayn Rand is talking about in Selfishness Without a Self is the mentality that is seeking protection of a tribe from reality. They fear, not other people, but the responsibility of having to be the ones to make their own choices. They're afraid of having to make choices, and so they're looking for someone else to make the choices for them. I think, again, sociologically this this can't be the basic cause because you're not going to be able to get guidance from a tribe if there isn't a tribe already there, and if there isn't somebody already leading it, like Tui, that you can then get wrapped up in. But I do think that this gets us a little closer to understanding what the motivation of the tribal leaders is going to be. Because I think, as we'll see, they also share the same kind of fear of responsibility as do the followers. They just figure out new and more manipulative ways to deal with that fear. So I'm going to now get into the, that kind of middle overlapping category where I think the the two big factors that I'm going to cite here help to account for not only dishonest followers of altruism but also a lot of the leaders and and often one turns into the next So, uh, and so there's a kind of chicken and egg problem here we need to eventually get to the point where we figure out which comes first and what the what the ultimate basic kind of choice is that gets altruism going in the first place but we'll get to that at the end this is our preliminary to that so first category of i want to outline here is appeasement. Altruism is not just for losers is one way of putting this point. It's not just for people who've never bothered to develop any abilities and so because they don't have any, get trapped up in a tribe or get uh, pushed around by preachers. There are also, as you know, many highly intelligent, even accomplished followers of altruism. And this is a category of followers that Ayn Rand analyzes extensively in her essay, Altruism as Appeasement. Uh, There she talks about young intellectuals who, let's say, because they're intellectuals, uh, feel alienated from the world around them. They know that other people resent them for their intelligence. but. They still want to get along. They don't want to be completely alienated. They try to find ways to apologize for who they are and what they are, and what they end up doing is trying to appease the critics of their intelligence, and the way they do that is with altruism. Uh, The way that Ayn Rand explains this in that essay is to say, altruism offers an arsenal of such rationalizations. If an unformed adolescent can tell himself that his cowardice is actually humanitarian love, that his subservience is unselfishness, that his moral treason is spiritual nobility, he's hooked. An intellectual appeaser surrenders morality, the realm of values, in order to be permitted to use his mind. The best kind of example of this category of people I could give today Uh, would be the real world example of someone like Bill Gates. Gates obviously is a highly intelligent, independent innovator who for a time at least was, was very proud of his achievements and we all owe him a debt of gratitude for them. But probably sometime after the antitrust suit in the late 1990s, Gates started to apologized for his wealth. And he began a process of uh, huge philanthropic projects to give away most of his wealth. And it didn't just stop there. He started to dig into the the intellectual issues at stake in the morality of self-sacrifice itself. And the best example I could give here is the fact that Gates himself promotes someone like Peter Singer. Peter Singer, the advocate of the aforementioned effective altruism movement that wants all of us to give away so much of our wealth, Gates even writes the introduction or a preface to Singer's book, Famine, Affluence, and Morality, a book in which Singer chastises Gates for not giving enough of his wealth away. That's, That's a really terrible kind of appeasement. I should mention it's not something you only see on the kind of left wing of the political spectrum. In her essay, Altruism is Appeasement, Ayn Rand says it's across both sides. She talks about a a fa- an eminent pro-capitalist intellectual she once met who feels the need to justify capitalism on the grounds of how it achieves the common good uh, by saying, oh, one must say that to the masses, otherwise they won't accept capitalism. It's the same kind of cowardly appeasement that you see coming uh, from other liberal intellectuals intellectuals, uh, on the other side. So where does this come from? What whim is responsible for someone who wants to appease critics of their own intelligence? The way Ayn Rand describes the motive in this essay is she says, it's fear of upholding the good because it's good and fear of opposing the evil because it's evil. Uh, The way that I would summarize it quickly just for the PowerPoint would be to say, this is moral cowardice. And definitely a dishonest reason for wanting to follow altruism, though I hope you see from the way this category has been described, this is not going to keep you as a follower. If you're someone like Bill Gates, you're starting to, to be a leader. You're starting to promote ideas uh, that, are, that are critical of your own achievements. And I think this is one of the reasons why, in Ayn Rand's essay, she says that this is the kind of behavior that's responsible for unleashing evil on the world. Gates putting something like uh, his name on a preface to a book by Peter Singer. is There's no better example than that. So there's one more category in the the list of of both followers and leaders. uh, And that's people who need to rationalize their vice. And one reason why the previous category, the appeasers of altruism, still doesn't take us as deep as we need to go in understanding where altruism comes from is because obviously these people wouldn't feel the need to appease their haters if there weren't haters there already that they needed to appease. So we need to understand where the haters actually come from. And this this category is going to help us do that. Ayn Rand has a lot to say about this issue in her essay Philosophical Detection. In that essay she she comes back to the issue that we started with, which is the the nature of emotions. Remember the nature of the whims that seem to be at the bottom of the acceptance of altruism. And she talks about how even though emotions do have causes, even though they do presuppose certain kinds of cognitive value judgments, it's easy to ignore that fact because of the way that emotions are experienced. Emotions happen automatically. They they feel as though they are primaries, even if they're not. And that affords an opportunity for dishonest people. It affords the possibility of wanting to disguise where the emotions actually came from. Remember, a whim was a desire that somebody didn't want to discover the cause of. And there could be reasons why they don't want to discover that cause. There could be reasons why they don't want to know why they are feeling the thing that they are feeling, because those reasons might be pretty bad. And so there's an incentive then to try to create an alternate reality of where they're coming from, a, a, an alternate theory of their identity. And that's what rationalization affords you the possibility of doing. She writes in that essay that altruism is the single richest source of rationalizations. It's the rationalization for the mass slaughter in Soviet Russia, for the legalized looting in the welfare state. Altruism is the rationalization for the powerless of politicians seeking to serve the, quote, common good for, It's the rationalization for envy, hatred, malice, brutality. Now, you'll see envy on that list. And you probably know Ayn Rand wrote a whole essay, The Age of Envy, just on this one rationalization. And she talks there about how altruism rationalizes hatred of the good for being good in a way that I think will shed light on where those haters come from that we were just talking about before that the the, the appeasers want to appease. She talks about, again, certain people fail to exercise the responsibility of cognition, fail to develop their minds, abandon their minds, rely on feelings, and then as a result of that, end up resenting the people who didn't do that, end up resenting the people of intelligence who have productive achievements. And so they'll say things like, he's conceited, he's selfish, What are they so conceited about? Well, they want to know, they want us to know how intelligent they are. Well, why shouldn't they want us to know that? And who don't you want to know in particular? And Ayn Rand says, you don't want to know yourself. You don't want to know how intelligent these people are, how they've developed an ability that you didn't develop. But look, you don't want to admit that to yourself. You don't want to admit that that's the reason because then you'd have to admit that you're hating somebody for being good. And everybody needs self-esteem. Everybody needs to believe that they're good in order to motivate their continuing action. And so when someone is in fact motivated by resentment for, for good people, they can't allow themselves to believe that. They have to come up with an alternate explanation. It's not that I hate him because he's good, it's that I hate him because he's bad, because he's selfish, because he's conceited. And that is of course what, the altruistic moral philosophy allows them to do. This is all over the place in the story of James Taggart. Of course, he's someone who's a paradigm case uh, of not developing his own intellectual abilities and therefore of resenting the other people in his life who do, resenting Dagny and Reardon and Francisco. But he doesn't want to realize that that's why he hates them. At certain points, Taggart even gets to the point of wanting to destroy these people because they're so good. But he doesn't want to admit to himself that that's the reason why. So there's this exchange between him and Cheryl that I think really brings out the role of altruism as a rationalization for envy. And it goes like this. This is, I think, right after he's told Cheryl that he's planning on hatching the nationalization plan in uh, South America. And he says to her, you think they're powerful, those giants of industry who are so clever with motors and furnaces? They'll be stopped. They'll be stripped. They'll be brought down. They'll be, he noticed the way she was staring at him. It's not for ourselves. He snapped hastily. It's for the people. That's the difference between business and politics. We have no selfish ends in view, no private motives. We're not after profit. We don't spend our lives scrambling for money. We don't have to. Does he protest too much? (laughs) Do you think also that he protests so much just because he wants to make himself look better in the eyes of Cheryl? Well, that's part of it. But if you know something about the dynamics of his relationship with Cheryl, all along, it's been about the fact that Cheryl thinks he's good. And she helps him believe that he's good. And so if suddenly she doesn't think it anymore, then his own assessment of his own good is at stake. He's protesting too much because he doesn't want to recognize that he himself, he doesn't want to recognize it himself, that he's a bad guy. And you know, of course, at the end of the story, when. When uh, Galt is on the torture rack and he realizes that uh, the only guy keeping us alive is the one he wants to destroy, when he can no longer evade just how bad he's become, that's when he collapses. You can't survive judging yourself evil. That's why people need to think they're not. and They need altruism desperately in order to convince themselves of that. Uh, this, is, this is a phenomenon I think we see all around us today. Uh, we could talk about uh, the, the left-wing egalitarians who have views uh, who, who, hate rational, who hate rational producers in much the same way that Taggart does. But I actually want to spend a moment talking about abortion again. It's a, it's a matter of some currency. And I think that this point is relevant to understanding just why so many people are just so adamantly opposed to abortion rights. Because, I mean, if you take them at their word, the reason is, look, the fetus is a human being. It's murder to, to kill human beings. That's, that's why they're opposed to abortion. But you have to really wonder, how could someone get so animated over stopping the murders, the alleged murders, of beings who've never been born, who have no hopes, have no dreams, they've never met them, they may never meet them. It's really hard to understand how you get motivated to save the life of such a pre-born being. I think if you want to understand why there's so much animus against abortion, you have to think in terms of, the psychology of envy. You have to think of the, the typical person who's, let's say, grew up in a religious household. Didn't even really matter if their family was religious. They grow up in a religious culture. And they accept the idea that sex is evil. They accept the idea there should be no sex before marriage. And they stick to those rules. And they do what they're told. Maybe they themselves had the, uh, were afraid to challenge authority. Uh, and so they live through years of doing what they're told, not seeking sex for pleasure. Then they have children. Maybe they didn't actually want these children, but they know they can't be baby killers. But then they look around and they see there are these other people out there, goddammit, who <laughs> are, who, they want to have sex for fun and, I, didn't, I did what I was supposed to These people, that why aren't they doing what I did? Why didn't I do what they did? And they hate these people because they had the courage to do what they themselves didn't have to do. I think that's what explains so much of the animus about abortion is, is, is hatred, envy for the self-esteem of people who wouldn't follow those rules when the haters would. Well, what's the, uh, what's the whim here? I mean, we're, we've really gotten to the point where we're not just naming a whim. We've, we've named a whole host of whims. Uh, envy, hatred, malice, brutality. If you read the rest of philosophical detection, there's even more that are listed. We're, we're to the point now where we're identifying the role that altruism plays in dealing with these whims. Altruism takes these whims and helps us evade their causes. Remember, a whim is a desire, the cause of which you do not want to discover. And what altruism does is it stops us from having to discover that. It stops us from having to discover maybe the reason that I oppose abortion is because I was too deferential to authority in, in sticking to these rules about chastity. Maybe I didn't have the courage that I should have had. Altruism helps evade the nature of all of these whims. And for these reasons, uh, it's going to be conducive to both uh, being an acceptor of altruism, but also being a leader and, and a promoter of altruism. Uh, because certain people are going to have reason not just to try to explain to themselves why they aren't as bad as they think, but they're going to have a reason to explain it to others and to foist it onto others. And so I want to get to, to the final category here, uh, tracing back as far as I think we can this genealogy of altruism to the leaders of altruism. We need something more to explain how this whole cycle gets started. You know, you can. You can rationalize your vice or your irrationality if you already know about altruism, because there it's readily available as as a, as a, as off-the-shelf uh, rationalization for your behavior and for your and for your your thinking. But the question is, how does it get out of someone's head in the first place to be available off the shelf? What motivates someone not just to make an excuse in the privacy of their own mind, but to put it down on paper and even to formulate a whole code of morality. Not just an excuse for one thing that they did, but a whole way of life that you're supposed to live all the time. You've got, there's got to be some real energy that motivates somebody to want to get this out of their head, put it on paper, give it to other people. And I think that the fundamental reason why that happens is a desire to control other people, and the reasons for why you would want to control other people I think are going to relate to a number of the factors we've already discussed. But once we get to the end of this point, you'll see just how deep it goes and how evil it can be. Ayn Rand says a lot about where she thinks altruism comes from historically in the first place. The first place that she comments on it that I have been able to dig up is Rourke's speech in uh, the Fountainhead. And she says there, the basic need of the second hander is to secure his ties with men in order to be fed. He places relations first. He declares that man exists in order to serve others. He preaches altruism. The second hander has used altruism as a weapon of exploitation and reversed the base of mankind's moral principles. From the beginning of history, the two antagonists have stood face to face, the creator and the second-hander. When the first creator invented the wheel, the first second-hander responded, he invented altruism. Okay. But, so this is, this is Rand's first take on kind of the origin story, historically speaking, of altruism. But as it goes, it doesn't go that far. The way it's characterized here, there are some lazy second-handers who don't really want to do any work, and so they want to convince other people to do the work for them so that they can be fed, and as a result, they invent altruism. Now, I think that's certainly a big part of it, and she does too. But as she develops her philosophy in the next 10 to 15 years, she digs much deeper into the psychology of the inventors of altruism to show it's not just about uh, being lazy and wanting somebody else to feed you. And in fact, I think there's, there's much more in the fountainhead that speaks to that, if not in this part of Rourke's speech. Uh, The next place that she begins to explore this is in Atlas Shrugged, in Galt's speech, there's a whole section in the second half of the speech about the psychology of the leaders of the mystics, the psychology of those who preach the morality of death. And she picks up where I left off earlier quoting that passage from Galt's speech where faith begins as, Uh, uh, a belief in the superiority of other people's minds. And she talks about how people who begin that way, who end up abandoning their minds when they meet with this challenge from another authority figure, well, having abandoned their minds, they are now left to their feelings. But what is the big feeling that they are going to be the most distracted and enveloped by if that's how they started out? Well, if faith starts as a belief in the superiority of other other people, if the whim there is fear of challenging authority, then the emotion that you'll be driven by is fear of other people, fear of other people's minds. She develops here the idea that the person who's abandoned his mind becomes obsessed by the minds of others, sees them as having a kind of mysterious power over them, which they don't understand because they don't understand the way that a rational mind works. But if they want to maintain their self esteem, if they want to maintain some kind of control over their life when there are all these other people out there who are seeking to control them, well, the only way they know to deal with that is, in effect, to do the same thing to them uh, that was done, to, to, that is to do the same thing to others as was done to them in the first place. So they gave in by believing something on faith. I know, what if we could get other people to believe something on faith that comes from us? So what, uh, what Rand says at this point is that the, someone who's abandoned this responsibility of cognition and fears others now seeks power over them in the following way. What he seeks is power over reality and over men's means of perceiving it. Their mind, the power to interpose his will between existence and consciousness, as if by agreeing to fake the reality he orders them to fake, men would, in fact, create it. So the idea is, if they have exercised power over you, if you can now exercise the same power over them, that will make you important. And it'll also help you realize, it'll help you hide the fact that you've been failing to exercise the responsibility of cognition this whole time. If you've not been using your mind, but you can convince other people to give things up for you, it'll make you feel efficacious. Their faking will help you fake. Now, Galt's speech doesn't say a lot about the way in which trying to get other people to accept things on faith involves the promotion of altruism. But one place where this does come up is just a few later, a few years later in for the new intellectual. Uh, In that essay, Ayn Rand develops the psychology of the mystic in even greater detail. This is where she brings in the idea that there's a kind of anti-conceptual mentality that people adopt, They, they don't want to form difficult abstractions to, in order to choose their own values. Uh, and they end up instead kind of collapsing into the level of an animal, the perceptual level uh, thinker. And as a result, she 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 highlights two kind of historical archetypes who she thinks are responsible at the beginning of the dawn of history for something like the development of the morality of altruism. And of course, you know probably who they are, you probably remember uh, Attila and the witch doctor. But there's an interesting relationship between the two of them. Attila is someone who doesn't want to do his own thinking, wants to live like an animal by forcing other people to give him stuff. So that's kind of like the the portrait of the inventor of altruism in in Rourke's speech. But of course, You can't just rule people by brute force. You need to convince people to come along with you. You need to have some kind of justification for what you're doing so that they don't feel like suckers. So the Attila character needs some kind of morality to rationalize what he's doing. And this goes back to our discussion of rationalization. Meanwhile, the witch doctor is someone who doesn't have the physical prowess of of the Attila. Uh, and so needs the physical protection of the Attila. But the thing that he's good at is uh, weaving together theories. And the Attila needs morality to justify his rule. That's what the witch doctor supplies. But the witch doctor then actually ends up having an upper hand here because he is able to rule the ruler by means of his theory. He's the one who gets to set the terms of. What is right or wrong? What allows this ruler to justify his rule, but also then gives uh, gives the intellectual a, a kind of controlling uh, option? And here's the way she sums up this point. While Attila extorts their obedience by means of a club, the witch doctor obtains it by a means much more, uh, by a much more powerful weapon. He preempts the field of morality. And of course, uh, this is early in the essay. Ayn Rand goes on to make very clear that the morality she's talking about is the morality of altruism. She says, no morality will ever allow someone to exercise this power over, uh, over oneself, unless it's one that divorces morality from the needs uh, of, of life and of existence. And the rest of the essay, then, really is her summary of the historical genealogy of altruism because starting with these historical archetypes, she says there there have been these types throughout history. Uh, Whether various politicians or various intellectual leaders, she gives a mini history of philosophy that shows how altruism gets increasingly systematized, how it's accepted uh, socially, even by those defenders of capitalism. how should we sum up this last point, the fact that the leaders of altruism want to control people? What does this say about the way in which altruism is, is ultimately based on whim? Well, if what Rand tells us is true, if these mystics develop altruism as a form of control over other people, with the view that if I can get them to fake If I can get them to believe something on faith, that helps me fake the idea that I'm in control. Well, what that means is that convincing other people of altruism helps you to evade your own evasion. You've evaded your whole life to the point where you don't don't want to use your mind to to make your way in life. You don't want to accept that. And so you need to evade your own evasion by having somebody else help you believe that you're better than you actually are. Now, if that's what's at the rock bottom of altruism, I think this helps us see why understanding the psychology behind altruism is helpful for evaluating it. If this is what's really behind the deepest roots of the psychology of the people who propose and foist altruism on the world, well, the least you can say is that altruism sure as hell isn't motivated by a love for the truth. It's not just that it doesn't have a rational justification. It's it's that it's constructed around the desire to, to excuse the need for rational justification on any terms. So that's pretty bad. And so when you hear people say things like, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Well, this is where the road to hell started. And this is no good intention, not, not by any stretch of the imagination. So I wanted to start to wrap up by saying a few things about the title of the talk. So the talk was called the Ayn Rand's Genealogy of Altruism. Some of you probably realize that that sounds a little similar to another famous title in the history of philosophy. And I want to say a word or two about that title by way of bringing out a deeper point about what's significant about Ayn Rand's view here. So I'll start by reading you a passage from another philosopher. See if you can guess who he is. He says, we need a critique of moral values. The value of these values themselves must first be called into question. And for that there is needed a knowledge of the conditions and circumstances in which they grew, under which they evolved and changed." Who is this? I heard a Nietzsche over there. This is Nietzsche from his book, The Genealogy of Morals. And in this book, Nietzsche famously develops a thesis that the dominant Judeo-Christian morality of our age developed over time, first in rebellion against a different morality that he theorizes had been dominant in an older age. He called it the master morality. This is the morality that celebrated aristocratic strength and virility. But then along comes uh, a bunch of envious members of the priestly class. They resent all of the power that the aristocrats have. And so they devise a new morality. Nietzsche calls this the slave rebellion in morality. And what this morality upholds instead is meekness and humility and sacrifice. And so if the priestly class isn't that powerful in the way that the aristocrats are, uh, they can now feel better about it because they have redefined the terms of morality. What was good is now evil, and what was evil is now good. That's the slave rebellion in morality. And one of the things that Nietzsche notices in going through the history of the ideas of altruism, and in in looking at what he at least theorizes must have been motivating this priestly class, he makes it, he he has an insight that I think is very interesting and in certain ways parallel to what Ayn Rand herself says. Now, there's some other really big differences between his approach to this and hers, which I'm gonna get to. But here's a line uh, from another book of his just two years prior, Beyond Good and Evil, where he previews a thesis that he's going to explore in the genealogy of morals. And here's what he says, he says, and this is right at the beginning, uh, or close to the beginning of Beyond Good and Evil. Gradually it has become clear to me what every great philosophy so far has been, namely the personal confession of its author and a kind of involuntary and unconscious memoir also that the moral or immoral intentions in every philosophy constituted the real germ of life from which the whole plant had grown. Indeed, if one would explain how the abstrusest metaphysical claims of a philosopher really came about, it is always well and wise to ask first, at what morality does all this aim? Now, of course, we know Ayn Rand was influenced by Nietzsche. Probably she developed most of her philosophy before reading him. But it's hard not to notice some of the things Nietzsche says here and notice parallels with what she says. Though, as I said, she puts a very different spin on it than he ends up doing, and I want to just call your attention to some of the major differences here. So first, on the one hand, Nietzsche, as I already summarized, he thinks there was once this master morality that all the aristocrats practiced and celebrated, which is it celebrated strength and virility, uh, not humility and meekness, like the slave morality, which was created by people who were weak, who resented the powerful, who wanted to be able to put one over on them. In in describing the way that the priestly class puts it over on the aristocrats, Nietzsche is actually rather admirable. He thinks, wow, they really put one over on him. He doesn't agree with it, he doesn't like it, but he sees it as this kind of rebellious act of an exercise of the will to power in its own right. And as a result, looking at how both of these moralities functioned, he thinks that all moralities, all philosophies, in fact, are, are rationalizations for the personal intentions of their authors. Now Rand is different in, in, in a number of interesting ways. For one thing, she doesn't see this dichotomy between the master and the slave morality like Nietzsche did. And if you think now about her archetypes of Attila and the witch doctor, which sound a lot like the masters and the, versus the priestly class, you see, she thinks they weren't Uh, these dueling opposites from the beginning of history. In fact, they always relied on each other because of the story that we heard before, that the Attilas needed the witch doctor to rationalize their rule. They needed to be able to sell the people on what they were doing. And the witch doctors always needed their protection. Why did they need each other so badly? Well, because both of them were not some exemplars of the will to power. Both of them had, had abdicated their fundamental powers their fundamental human powers, by never bothering to to learn to develop their minds, uh, and by evading the existence of the people who did, by evading the productive achievers. And both of them are then allied against them. And then the 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 last part is the most important. Whereas Nietzsche thinks that all philosophies and all moralities are just rationalizations of possibly bad intentions, Rand thinks that's true of evil philosophies, of irrational philosophies. She doesn't think it's true of good philosophies. And to understand that last point in a way that I think will take us back to the beginning of our, of our discussion, because remember what we started with was, why is there so much altruism? Why, how could it be that something that has no rational basis is nonetheless accepted by people all over the place? And we're not just talking about uh, one particular sect that has one particular weird revelation. Regardless of all the differences in weird revelations that people have, they still, they still all seem to be agreed about altruism. Well, I'll read for you one final passage from Rand where she takes the mechanics that she's developed in the philosophical detection essay in order to understand this better. And here's what she says. If in the course of philosophical detection you find yourself at times stopped by by the indignantly bewildered question, how could anyone arrive at such nonsense? You will begin to understand it when you discover that evil philosophies, that evil philosophies, are systems of rationalization. The elaborate structures in which irrational philosophy is presented are never purposeless. The most virulently rabid irrationalist senses the derivative nature of emotions and will not proclaim their primacy, their sovereign causelessness, but will seek to justify them as responses to reality. And if reality contradicts them, he will invent another reality of which they are the humble reflectors, not the rulers." Well, today, altruism is everywhere because we are living in a world populated by the products of these invented realities of our intellectual ancestors. We now know something I hope we we, we understand a little bit better, Ayn Rand's views about why these ancestors of ours invented these realities, what it was that motivated them, what kinds of whims, what kinds of basic resentment and and hate prompted them to try to exercise power over other people by, by letting altruism out into the world. The good part is that this is not, even though this is an origin story, this is not a story about some kind of original sin that we are now all tainted with. Because if, as she says, we try to be good philosophic detectives, someday we might find ourselves feeling a little bit of resentment for somebody who's better than we are. But if we understand that that resentment comes from somewhere, if we understand that we shouldn't treat it as a whim, that we should try to discover its cause, then we can can look at that feeling, we can think about where it comes from, what mistakes we might have made that lead to it. And I think that in doing that, at least in our own souls, we can stop altruism in its tracks. Thank you.
2: Okay, so thank you so much, and I had a question um, about a very specific example of fighting altruism that Ayn okay. writes about. So, so we know that she talks about, you know, how we have the capability to change, and we have the free will to actually engage with what's around us and figure out that, you know, things are going wrong. And she writes about it. And sometimes people overcome the second-handed way of living in like the case of the wet nurse in Atlas Shrugged. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they fail like Katie in The Fountainhead. But I wanted to know about a specific thing. In The Fountainhead, um, there's a point where he sees, Rourke sees that Keating has the ability to change when he's specifically making that deal with him. And, There's a part where, you know, Keaton goes off to like this place and he doesn't tell anybody where he goes and his mom is like, oh, he probably has another lover there. But he comes back with a bunch of his like crude little paintings and gives them to Rourke. And instead of, and Rourke looks at him and says, it's too late. Yeah. And I wanted to know why.
1: Well, we got a question uh, like this on the podcast recently. Oh. I think um, Aaron and Mike answered it. So look that up. But... I think the, f- the main thing that I would say is you have to understand what it is that he's saying it's too late to do. Mm. I think the main thing Rourke is saying is it's too late for Peter to become a painter, mm. which is true. Com- and, and Rourke, of all people, should know it. Rourke is someone who's, who's spent decades of his life developing his artistic skills as an architect. Mm-hmm. And Keating had the chance to do that. He was was interested in painting initially, but then he dropped it because of the sacrifice that he made for his mother. So I think that Rourke is primarily commenting there on it's too late to become a painter. Mm. I don't think that Rourke means to say that it's too late for Keating to morally redeem himself. And in fact, it would would be inexplicable if Rourke thought otherwise, given the way he's dealing with Keating at this point in the story. I mean, Keating is having. Moments of honesty. And he's he's trying to help Rourke fight this fight to get Cortland built the way that Rourke wants it to be built. Now, Keating still ends up losing uh that battle by making more bad choices. And that's in part because it, it certainly would be really, really hard for Keating to be redeemed at this point. Yeah. Because he's automatized so much of altruism in his soul, he's given up so many of those. Uh, things that he valued and he never really got around to finding something to value in the first place Which was the point that I was making so it's gonna, It's gonna take a whole lot of work for him to turn around most people Won't do it because it takes so much work Turns out Keating doesn't have it in him But I think you've got to think it was possible for him even if it would have been really hard So I don't think when Rourke is saying it's too late He's talking about the possibility of changing his character.
2: Yeah, I was just I was thinking it couldn't be that it was the case of Taggart Who's like faced with his evasion and then crumples because he sees that Keating has the capacity to be that person. And so it's thank an
1: interesting you. question whether you can get so bad that you, in effect, destroy something permanently about your mind that that makes change impo- for the better impossible. I mean, there are probably—I mean, we know that there are things you can do, like with, with drugs, that will destroy your mind permanently. It's an interesting question whether there are things that you can do just by making certain kinds of choices and, and, and certain kind of thinking that has an effect on your brain that makes it impossible to change. I don't know. But if, if, it, if there are examples of that, Taggart is, is probably one of them.
2: Thank you.
3: We have a question from uh, online from Alex. Hmm? Suppose someone has made a lot of money and has asked who he has to thank for his fortune. This person responds by saying that he is self-made and has achieved his fortune through his own intellect and hard work. Often, the self-made person is subsequently asked, why are you so conceited? How should the self-made person respond? Should he answer, yes, I am conceited, and interpret the question as a compliment, or should he respond differently? And what is the role of altruism in this situation? I
1: don't think, unless there's a really important rhetorical purpose to it, I don't think he should say he's conceited because, being conceited is actually a kind of vice. It's, it's, it's wanting to boast to others about how good you are because you care too much about what they think about you. And so it is a vice. And somebody who accuses an actually intelligent person of being conceited just because they're intelligent is saying something false. It's a, it's a, it's a calumny. And so. Um, then there's the question, well, what would the right response actually be? I don't think the right response is either to say, no, actually, I'm, I'm just a rational guy who's, uh, who's, who's uh, made his way in the world. Usually if somebody calls you that and you know you're not, the best thing to do is to end the conversation because you'll just be, uh, you'll just be feeding them by even getting into a debate with them. Um, I have this experience a lot on Twitter these days. <laughs> Okay, should we go to the floor?
4: Okay, thank you, Ben. Thank you very much, and um, I have a, two kind of related questions with regard to the Fountainhead, because I was thinking, um, could you characterize uh, Winand as the Attila and Ellsworth Toohey as the witch doctor, and their, their kind of relationship? I know, I know Winand is not uh, a warlord of any kind, but he does press people in their integrity and try to get them to break. Um, in that way, and they, he tries to kind of rule and lord over people, thinking that he is the one who is feeding them their their ideas, or are they variants of the same kind.
1: I I don't want to say that Weinand is is like an Attila. That's not that's too critical of Weinand. Weinand is was a great man, started out life great, and the more I think of it now that you just raised it, he's he's much more like the category of the intellectual appeaser that I talked about before, where he he knows he's intelligent, he knows he has ability, he's alienated from people who don't care or who even hate him for it. And as a result, I think you could describe his whole history with the founding of the Wine and Papers as a form of appeasement because he's, he's uh, he explicitly allows people like Tui to, to, to run things and to gain the upper hand of the intellectual content of the paper. I don't think he's quite as far into the category of the intellectual pizzer as the people described in that essay, because I mean, he's got a very unique psychology. He doesn't, he doesn't actually feel guilty uh, by the standards of altruism. He thinks this is a form of power. he can have over other people. So it's not obsequious in the way the appeasers are. But of course, at the end, he does end up being obsequious because he, when he sells in and when he sells out. So you might say by the end of the story, after he's given up on Rourke, he's, he's more like someone in that category. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say he's the Attila type, at okay. least not yet. Like maybe uh, yeah. if he stays alive 10, 20 years, uh, and stays on this premise, maybe he becomes one. Hmm.
4: Okay, and real quick, um, I noticed you mentioned the motivation of fear in a lot of these, uh, in, you know, uh, people abandoning their mind and negating their reason and uh, obeying authority. But I know, for instance, in The Found Head, Ellsworth, too, he tells uh, Peter Keating, you know, you shall uh, achieve the, the most uh, exultant happiness of, you know, a batting in your mind. You won't need to think. You can just obey and you'll just have this nirvana like experience. So, so, in a lot of these promoters of altruism, they give you some kind of payoff or benefit. Could you ex- and elaborate on that? Thank you.
1: I mean, I think that's rationalization, both on the part of the person who's saying it and for the sake of the person who's hearing it. Um, it's, it's, you wouldn't want to accept the fact that you are really just motivated by fear. And so you've got to say, oh, no, 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 I'm, I I want to go to heaven, and I, I'm looking forward to the blisses of sitting on a cloud, playing my harp. But, I mean, realistically, how many people actually are? How many people do you really think, you know, sit there dreaming of, oh, yes, it's going to be so great on that cloud, looking down at all the people who, you know, so it's it's, it's unre- it seems psychologically unrealistic to me that that ever motivates somebody to adopt religious views or morality. Uh, it is plausible to me that they need to tell themselves that, because they don't want to know the real reason.
3: Another question from online, from Eric mm-hmm. this time. We need a method to restart the altruist's mind. Can we develop a psycho method to show them the cost of altruism, and challenge them to understand and create rational values
1: I don't think there's an easy answer to that question it the a common theme in a number of the essays that I talked about today uh, is and you probably heard me say defaulting on the responsibility of cognition over and over again that when you don't use your mind as you should yourself you start to resent other people who do. You hate them. You come up with rationalizations to explain that away. Um, So it starts with defaulting on that responsibility. It starts with with never learning how to conceptualize the world and your own values in the first place. There's not a method that you can use specifically aimed at getting people out of that, really aside from their becoming. They're wanting to become educated. And this is why so much uh, much of this goes back to education. Uh, If you you furnish the child with the proper kind of environment, they can can learn to use their conceptual faculty on their own. Um, So much of our educational system is designed to do the opposite. And that's why I mentioned, I think, products of modern education as as ripe for being the tribalist recruits. Um, so, I, I don't think there's like a specific tonic just for here's what will cure the people who think like altruists. It's a, the, if anything, the theme here has been that altruism is exactly what we should expect given all the other defaults in uh, our culture, all the ways in which it's opposed to reason, all the ways in which it fails to develop people's minds. So uh, for that, I, I refer you to uh, my friends who will be talking about Montessori education I think, later at this, at this conference.
3: And would you see uh, a version of Todd Svani's happiness team where skills of, of self-examination are developed as a possible method to counter this idea?
1: I don't know so much about what they're doing on that team, but it, it, from what I've heard about it, it, it sounds like it sure wouldn't hurt.
3: <laughs> Thank you.
2: Uh, so you answered most of my question with this last question. Um, but I guess uh, with all these different kinds of altruists that have different causes for their altruism, would you suggest a different path to regaining their self-esteem and becoming selfish?
1: Yes. Uh, but exactly what that path is is the is the is the hard thing that I was commenting on in the previous question. So like, and this relates to the question about Rourke and and Keating as well. What can Rourke do for Keating by the point by the time that Keating is come along as far as he has down the rabbit hole of of altruism i mean he can he can try to demonstrate to him what values there are in in thinking for yourself i I think of the conversation between the two of them where uh, he's explaining to keating how they're going to move forward together with Cortland, and he says to keating uh to become a first to become a doer, you first have to love the doing. And I mean, that's kind of the basic thing that Keating's missing out on, is not actually loving the doing, where the doing not just means architecture, but it means thinking. And there's not really a way of, of teaching someone to, to like that, aside from giving them an environment in which to explore, in which they can do it, and uh, by their own agency, learning to love it. And there's a, there's a way in which, Rourke is kind of doing that for Keating, and so far as he's cooperating with him. But it's also pretty late in the game. And Keating's automatized so many different uh, bad habits. So it, it really, the best things that we can do for other people in this regard, I think, are all things that are done at a very early age. Early education is so important. Thanks.
5: I really appreciated that analysis and talk. Um, so a few times throughout the talk, you mentioned that altruism is used as a rationalization to prevent self-development. Um, and not developing yourself saves that whole investment of resources. So my question is, is there a method that we could kind of take a rational selfishness and make it competitive in terms of how cognitively frugal it comes off as?
1: Could Could you explain your question just a little bit more? I don't quite okay. get how the, you're asking about a method for avoiding this problem few other people have asked a similar question so could you say what more specifically you have in mind
5: so like part of the value like value of not deriving your own values is it's cheap like locally so is there like a decentralized ration, rationalization process that we could generate to enable rational selfishness to be more accessible and then kind of bootstrap people into being rational locally within their self this is, again, this
1: is, again, it sounds like the similar questions, asking for a, a, a kind of quick and dirty algorithm that you can expose people to to get them out of their altruism. I just don't, I don't know that there is one. Aside from what I said before about uh, how a lot of it is starts at a young age with education, I could also add, don't let them get away with it, which means don't let, don't let them use you as a source of evasion. So I talked about how uh, one of the things that motivates people to want to control others is that if the others go along with the control, it helps give them the confidence, oh yeah, I actually can make it, because I'm able to control and manipulate all these people. I didn't actually use my mind, but still, look, I'm the master of reality, because they're, they're, they're following my orders. So I mean, one of the big lessons of Atlas Shrugged is the importance of not giving the sanction of the victim. One of the things that Reardon figures out, Reardon himself figures this point out, he figures out that by cooperating with the looters and, and with his family, he's helping them to fake. And so the, the, sh- the best thing one can do in the short term is to not do that and to not sanction them and to, and, and to judge them for what they are. And that's what Reardon does. And it doesn't stop the other people from uh, becoming altruists, but it stops them from exploiting him and it does face them more with the consequences of their actions, uh, which in certain cases uh, would, would allow them to, if they were in mo- a moment of honesty, they could see the consequences and, and start to change. And perhaps there's something like that going on between Reardon and the wet nurse. I think that's all I've got there. Cool.
5: Thank you.
0: Hi. Um, I had a question. Um, about the quote that you brought up early in the talk um, that uh, included the excerpt, uh, relieve the suffering of others whose character he does not understand. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering, is there an implication in that quote that there are people whose suffering shouldn't be relieved? And I was wondering what, um, who do you think Rand was referring to or what type of person? I mean, like, are we talking about people who, you know, like they're doing very badly in life because of their own, doing or you know or because they did something bad and I was just kind of wondering like what was being characterized like um if you had any Uh, there's
1: a lot of things that I imagine she has in mind uh you know Ayn Rand definitely thought that generosity could be appropriate when as I think you implied somebody is in trouble through no fault of their own um and so but that's a, that's only one category, it's only one small category of the people we're often <clears throat> asked to sacrifice for. So there are people who are in, in trouble through a fault of their own, and often it's not as specific as, oh, uh, I shouldn't have taken this bad drug and had this bad trip and gotten into the hospital and therefore I need medical help. It's it's often more involved than that, It's 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 often just the, f- things that a person failed to do, rather than a person, the things that they actively did do, the, the abilities that they failed to develop. And and as a result, here they are looking at the world, feeling resentful of it, feeling resentful of the people who've done things, and saying, hey, you really ought to sacrifice for me because you're so conceited. So I mean, there's a lot of examples of that, and they fall into different categories. And, uh, and, and I think it's also important that they include not just like People who are despondent, but also the people who are calling for the sacrifices, the intellectuals uh, that the better people don 't understand their motives, and we 've explored some of those today and and that's that 's part of what you need to understand if you want to reject it i think
0: right, but the, the quote she put them at as the same person that is you know the, they don 't understand the psychology of of the people who' suffering um, well, relieve the suffering of others whose character, he does not understand, so it's the same. Uh, but anyway, um, I had a quick follow-up question. Um, just regarding something that you mentioned here, um, you, you talked about people who are afraid to rock the boat, or uh, and you also discussed the like, fruits of modern education, mm-hmm. um, and people who are sort of prone to fall for certain ideas. Um, can you really, uh, I sort of have still have trouble with certain classes of individuals, uh, character, thinking of them as dishonest, um, like, um, and, and really saying that, that, you know, the full weight of moral condemnation should be held. And I'm also not sure if these are the very people who are most in need of moral guidance, if that's necessarily a productive approach to condemn someone who, you know, gets out of high school and is sort of filled with like, you know, crazy ideas and they join, you know, Marxist student group at, you know, some university and they start sort of preaching these things. like. Like how do you sort of approach yeah. moral condemnation well, in this case? So
1: one thing that's important, which I maybe didn't make clear enough in the talk, was I think the further down the list I went was also the greater the level of culpability. And they're not all the same. There's a big difference between someone like Catherine Halsey, who is intimidated by her uncle and who gives in to fear and believes him because of the big difference between her and Somebody who devises an entire system of philosophy out of hatred for productive people uh, And so I and I emphasized at the beginning. Yeah, that I thought When she does that she's being dishonest with herself and that's bad But it's not like doesn't make her irredeemably bad, you know, somebody if, if, if Rourke had come along and had a conversation with her at that point she might have in a moment of honesty, realized what she was doing. And if she had seen a better alternative, she might've uh, walked away from that whole uh, life. And uh, so there, there, it's, it's really important that there are degrees of immorality and that some of them make you, uh, some decisions you know, make you more irredeemable than others. And I think generally the further down that list I went, the more irredeemable they came The more culpable the people became, the more you would actually condemn them as opposed to just disapprove and recommend something else. Right.
0: Okay, thank you. Uh,
1: You described a certain kind of sexually repressed Christian in in regards to abortion. How do secular opponents of abortion fit into that in in terms of your analysis? So I can't remember if I talked about this, I meant to, but. I certainly don't want to uh, make the point that all abortion, su- all abortion rights supporters are, they're all the good guys and they're all perfectly honest and rational and, and courageous. Uh, that's far from the truth. Um, I think, I think most, uh, most, most people today who support abortion rights, at the very least, are kind of on the level of the tribalist, where they're, they see everybody around them doing it. Uh, what about the secular opponent? Yeah, the secular opponent. You know, so somebody who's not, doesn't have sexual issues with abortion. Yeah, you know, it's not something from their past. It'd be someone, you know, the people you've been arguing with on Twitter is basically what I've been asked, that, that call themselves objectivists. Oh, why would the secular opponents, uh, yeah. of, but, opponents of abortion? Yeah, where were they sorry. from? Sorry. Yeah. Um, well. <laughs> <laughs> you can see that, There's some fresh meat there. <laughs> I'll put it this way. I think that even, even a lot of uh, people who regard themselves as Ayn Rand and who, I was just having a conversation with this over dinner last night, a lot of people who regard themselves as, as fans of Ayn Rand and who uh, think of themselves even maybe as objectivists and, and, and they don't believe in God, it's, it's because of all the stuff that we've been talking about today, when you grow up in a culture that's nonetheless saturated with with religious morality, it's really hard to escape the consequences of that, even in spite of some of your best efforts. Uh, And and one consequence in particular is that because of the inadequacy of our educational system, uh, the way that people of an intellectual bent are inclined to treat ideas is on the model that's been, in effect, given to them by religious thinkers of the past, which is ideas are floating abstractions that are revelations from God kind of on the model of Plato. And that's, that's what we call rationalism in objectivism, that rationalism is where you, you get an idea from somebody else, you think you understand it, you haven't really fully digested it, and you treat it as a kind of intellectual plaything that you make deductions from. And I think, I think that uh, the secular opponents of abortion rights are uh, basically rationalistic in their understanding of the concept of individual rights. So it's, it's not that they're necessarily haters, it's not that they're necessarily repressed, though in some cases repression does go along with rationalism, so I don't want to rule that out. But what's, what's essential is that they, don't ha- they have a floating understanding of the concept of rights because of uh, whichever failures of their education. And it's, I mean, every, all of us start out as, I think, almost all of us start out as rationalists in our understanding of objectivism. And it takes a lot of work. It takes years to start to get out of it. And uh, I, I myself feel like I didn't I didn't fully uh, understand the case for abortion rights until I got a really inductively based, non-rationalistic understanding of rights. And um, it's it's hard work. Not necessarily repression, though. Sometimes yes.
6: Do you think that the perception? that interests necessarily conflict is a contributing factor to the honest but mistaken acceptance of altruism?
1: A lot of things contribute to it. There are all kinds of, um, there are all kinds of intellectual confusions that lead people to think that, uh, for instance, you you have to choose between uh, sacrifice of yourself to others and sacrificing others to yourself. So if you think those are the only two options, and you you find other sacrifice abhorrent, you'll 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 opt for altruism. And yeah, one of the principles that or one of the premises that leads to the view that there is that choice and that those are the only two choices is the idea our our interests are always in conflict, so we have to either give them up and you know and be good or sacrifice others and be bad. Um, so yeah, there there are there are other intellectual confusions that go into honestly accepting altruism. I was citing what I think is the main one, because that's, that's one of the main ways in which altruism is sold. But yeah, there's a lot of others. And, and this relates to the point that I didn't get a chance to talk about, which is that in that essay, Philosophical Detection, she doesn't just say altruism is a rationalization. She says evil philosophies are systems of rationalization. And so, you know, somebody can say, oh, there's a difference between altruism and generosity. Some people will sometimes want to help people out of just pure goodwill without a sacrifice. Well, what's the the altruist comeback to that? They've got to say, oh, but, (laughs) but, but interests conflict, and sometimes you have to choose, and you don't want to choose one, you want to choose the other. That's the way that a system of philosophy reinforces a certain conclusion. If you read that essay, it's not just on the subject of ethics. I mean, she goes down all the way to metaphysics and epistemology. She basically thinks that Kant's whole metaphysics and epistemology is offered up as a rationalization for his view of morality. Because if you don't understand where this altruistic morality is coming from, there's no observable reality that gives rise to it. Uh, that's a problem too. I know it, it ultimately comes from noumenal reality. You can't see it, you can't understand it, but it's still there and you, and you should believe it. So that, that's all part of, That's all part of the the system, the system of rationalization, and she thinks all philosophy works that way, and it's easy to be confused about any of these issues, and I think that you're right, there are other issues besides the one I mentioned.
6: Hi, Ben. So when you talk about the fear of the responsibility of cognition, I'm thinking about the people or children and older people who are so responsible for their cognition that when somebody comes to them or e- either a teacher or an older or a parent or someone and says, you're doing something wrong, let me show you how to do it. And, and those people are definitely people I notice and children who say, no, get away from me. I want to try it myself. I want to do it for myself. Just don't show, I'll, I'll better struggle for months. So, but you don't tell me. So, what do you think is essentially different about the mind of those, either children or more adults even who take that approach? that they're so, don't have any fear of cognition at all? What's the difference, do you think?
1: I, I guess I don't, I don't f- know if I'm fully getting the question, but I mean, there, you're right that, A, that there's a difference between, there's definitely a difference between people who fearing authority will just believe whatever they're told and those who will resist it. Um, now, the part of what makes it a little hard for me to process is the kind of example that you're giving isn't quite the same thing as refusing to believe something that you're told. You're giving an example of somebody who's trying to, let's say, learn something for themselves. And they know that in order to learn it, they can't just be told what to do. Um, they need to actually try it for themselves. And, I think the issue there is, is not even, so the person who's trying to, let's say, teach someone how to ride a bike by giving a lecture on it or something like that, um, is they're not asking to be taken on faith. They just perhaps, let's say, have a, a poor pedagogical approach where they know, they don't realize that there needs to be an interactive component in learning. Um, and that's just, and that's the way that learning works that because there's a a responsibility the learner has to take for himself. So I wouldn't say that anybody who's just got a bad method of teaching is necessarily expecting to be taken on faith, Um, because even good methods of teaching uh, still still involve giving something to the learner from the teacher. And not every time you learn something from a teacher is, is a case of taking it on faith, especially if you have good reason to trust the teacher. If you think the teacher knows what they're talking about, you yourself have independent reason to think the teacher knows what they're talking about. Uh, that's not taking them on faith. It's, it's, it's taking their reliable testimony. Uh, but there are better and worse ways of, of delivering that, that lesson. Okay. Does, that, does that speak to the issue you're raising? I
6: might you? be confused between the two examples, as you said. But I was thinking about somebody who is rejecting any advice uh, at all that psychology which when you just don't take anything from, like teachers or either on for it or somebody explaining it to you. You are just, there are people who reject that completely. And, OK.
1: Well, yeah. I, just really quickly, I would say, in, for reasons related to what I just mentioned,
6: yeah. the
1: it's not right to say that if you want to avoid going on faith, you should just never try to learn anything from anyone. We all have to rely on other people to learn things. Uh, and so. What we need to do if we're going to exercise the responsibility of cognition is is to figure out who are the best teachers for ourselves and go to them. Okay, and I, I, I gather I think that we are out of time now. So uh, thank you very much. I can answer more questions later if you like.
0: Thanks for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org.